Hi, welcome to The Playful Musician. I'm your host, Steve Davidson. Each week, I sit down with musicians from all different paths, from composers to conductors, percussionists to piccolo players, to tease out their strategies, practice habits, tips, tools, tricks, routines, and how they keep all of it playful. The Playful Musician is an intimate look into the lives of each musician, how they got to where they are, what motivates and inspires them, and what playing music means to them. If you'd like to learn more about the guests or just more about being playful, head on over to the website, theplayfulmusician.com. There you can find show notes, links to all references mentioned in the show, and all kinds of resources related to music. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to The Playful Musician on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, why not leave a review as well? Thanks again, and without further ado, here is this week's episode. Hi, I'm Steve Davidson, the host and creator, and I'm real excited to have you here in this very first episode as I launch the podcast. My first guest is my close friend, percussionist, and teacher, Terry Longshore. Terry and I have known each other for about 12, maybe 13 years, and we both live here in Ashland. Ashland, if you don't know, is a border town right on the border of Oregon and California, nestled between the Siskiyou Mountains and the Cascade Mountains, and it's home to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Um, Terry and I were introduced through my good friend Todd Barton, who used to be the resident composer at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and now Todd is on to doing bukla and other types of electronic music, and we'll hear more from Todd in a few episodes down the road. You know, something that's always struck me about Terry is just his positive attitude and his just immense joy for life, whether it's with his wife, Jen, or with his kids, or just hanging out amongst friends. Terry is always one to smile, laugh, and just make you feel awesome. As I mentioned earlier, Terry is a professor of percussion at the Oregon Center for the Arts at Southern Oregon University. There, he directs the Left Edge Percussion Ensemble, as well as the Southern Oregon University Percussion Ensemble. Terry teaches courses in percussion, music business, and contemporary arts and music, and he's also the coordinator of the music graduate program. In Terry's bio, he is described as an artist whose genre-crossing works exhibit the artistry of the concert stage, the spontaneity of jazz, and the energy of a rock club. And I can verify that. His energy is high and so much fun. Uh, whether he's collaborating with multimedia artists, composing live music for dance and theater, or premiering works by today's most groundbreaking composers, Terry Longshore brings a dynamic voice to every musical encounter. From concert venues in the Americas, Europe, and Australia, to flash mobs in Amsterdam, he has concertized and performed throughout the world. He is the co-artist director of flute and percussion duo Caballito Negro, with, along with uh, Tessa Brinkman. She'll also be on the podcast in a few episodes. And multimedia duo Left Edge Collective. He also performs with the Flamenco Ensemble, ensemble <laughs> Flamenco Pacifico. He has performed extensively with ensembles Skin and Bones, Redfish Bluefish, Conundrum, and Sonoluminescence, among others. 
He has also performed at numerous festivals, including the Bang on a Can Marathon in New York City, the Los Angeles Philharmonic Green Umbrella Series, the Brit Music and Arts Festival, which is in Jacksonville. Uh, That's about 15 miles from Ashland. Uh, The Transplanted Roots International Percussion Symposium, the Cabrillo Music Festival, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, the Festival of New American Music, the Northwest Percussion Festival, the Oregon Fringe Festival, and he's also been featured numerous times at the Percussive Arts Society International Convention, also known as PASIC. His compositions for percussion have been performed at festivals and competitions throughout North America, South America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Wow, Terry, you really need to get around a little more. To say Terry is versatile would be a gross understatement. I have watched Terry perform on tabla, uh, doing East Indian music. I've seen him on the cajon in flamenco, playing jazz drum set in a jazz setting, and vibes, all and all other manner of percussion, um, from marimba to even a cigarette lighter, if you can imagine that. He has pretty much single-handedly grown the Southern Oregon University, Oregon Center for the Arts Percussion Department from little or nothing to when he first started. He actually was hired as the the director of jazz there and then grew the percussion ensemble over the years into what is now an internationally recognized percussion department. He consistently draws top quality talent to his graduate program, and he is highly sought after, not only uh, for his performance skills, but also because he's a master teacher. In this conversation, we discuss the origins of Terry's enthusiasm for music and teaching, his trajectory from banker to a music professor, how he thinks about performance, practice, and playing, what excites him most about music, and all manner of tips, tricks, strategies, etc., for being a better musician and just being a great human being. I hope you enjoy this inaugural episode of The Playful Musician. This interview took place in July of 2019. At that point in time, Terry and I had no idea, much like the rest of the world, what 2020 held in store for us. We could not have predicted a global pandemic and the strict social isolation that would happen that would affect so many. I hope you find joy and inspiration from the interview. I know I did. It is my enormous pleasure to present to you my conversation with Terry Longshore. Thanks, Terry, for being on the show. Yeah, thank you, Steve. Um, It's the middle of summer. We're enjoying the Tour de France and um, just uh, commenting on how time expands a little bit during the summer and you kind of lose track of which day or what time it is, and that's kind of a that's kind of a great thing. Interesting, it's a wonderful feeling. <laughs> interesting thing for a drummer to lose <laughs> to lose track of time. But, um, one thing in reading your bio that was really curious was that uh, how did you get from business and computers <laughs> to music? Yeah, well. It's a crooked path, you know? <laughs> we all have different paths, and mine's been a little bit crooked, but, um, you know, I was always in music from the time I was very young. And when it was time to go to college, I 
I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, I would, at that point, I still played saxophone quite a, quite a bit, mm-hmm. mainly jazz saxophone and drum set and rudimental percussion, but I hadn't really gotten into like concert percussion or any of that yet. I'd done a little bit of, you know, youth orchestra stuff, but mainly as I was like a jazz and pop drummer, mm. but I also played saxophone quite a bit, a jazz saxophonist and started college and seemed at that point, I was at Fresno State University. It seemed like the music path meant one of two things, either being a gigging musician or being a high school band director. And I didn't think at that point I wanted to do either. Mm. I want. I knew I wanted to play, but I didn't know if I wanted to just make a living playing. And I knew I didn't want to be a high school teacher, so I decided to just be undeclared for a while. <laughs> right. <laughs> did that for a while until it was about, you know, I was like, I have to declare a major now. And I ended up just uh, kind of by process of elimination, choosing a business degree. And then within the business degree, you had to have some kind of emphasis. And personal computing was really taken off then. So I chose that as my emphasis. Right. Did. What year was that? Uh, well, I graduated from college in 89. Okay. So that was probably around 1987. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so got a degree in business, got an internship with a bank at the <laughs> end of my degree, got hired by the bank after I graduated. And then Wells Fargo Bank bought that bank, <laughs> interviewed for a job with them. And next thing I knew, I was fresh out of college and I was in the business loan officer training program for wow. Wells Fargo Bank. And did that for a couple of years, but it became apparent pretty quickly that I wasn't going to be happy long-term doing that. And I was still playing music the whole time, and I, I knew that really music needed to be the mm-hmm. full-time thing. So along that way, I had met my now wife, I'm still my soulmate, Jennifer, and her father was a university professor. And I kind of looked at his passion for what he did and his lifestyle and went, you know, I could do that with music. That looks like a pretty good gig. (laughs) And uh, decided to go back and do a degree in music with the end goal of, you know, doing advanced degrees and hopefully Mm. finding a university teaching job and and continuing to perform and create music and do all that along the way. Right. So that was the goal. And luckily, you know, everything (laughs) worked worked out. out. Yeah. And it's been been a great ride, a great career. Yeah. And the ironic thing of that whole path, I'll just really quickly say, and I maybe have told you that this before, but that whole time I was at Fresno State um, not studying music, my eventual mentor, Stephen Schick, was teaching percussion there. <laughs> and then he left um, around right, the time I was finishing up and went to UC San Diego and started to become the famous contemporary percussionist that he is. And so I reached out to him around that time. I ended up taking a class from him at Fresno State. It was like a history of jazz and rock music class, general education class. And it was probably the best class I had at that university Mm. because he's such an incredible teacher. Mm. And so he inspired me then. And when I decided to go back to school, I got in touch with him. He was down in San Diego by that time and told him what I was doing and that I wanted to keep in touch with him and so I ended up going to study with him later. But Oh, awesome. Yeah. So it was a good thing that you were at Fresno to meet him. That yeah. was a great connection. Yeah. 
for a year. Yeah, and I, you know, I took some music courses while I was there. I played in both jazz bands. At one time, I was playing saxophone. second alto saxophone <laughs> in the A band because they had drummer. They had a great drummer in the A band, uh, and playing drums in the B band. So that uh, was kind of a weird combination. <laughs> so did you start on saxophone? Was that your first instrument? Piano. Piano. Was my first, and then flute, and then saxophone, and then percussion. And did your parents? Were they the ones that steered you towards piano, or was that your interest as a young It was my person? interest. Yeah, we had a piano you know, in the house when I was growing up, and I have it now. It's our piano here in our house now. Luckily. That's the same piano? Same piano, oh, yeah. Wow. When my parents passed away, um, I took the piano, which nice. was really cool. And uh, yeah, so I, I just, my whole family was musical. My dad and my brothers, who are, my brothers are a lot older than me, Whenever they were home, they would all sit around and play guitars and sing. And my sister played piano mm. quite a bit. And so I just started noodling around on the piano. I would put on my brother's Elvis Presley records and play <laughs> along with them when I was, you know, like three, that's four awesome. years old. Yeah. Wow. That's super young. Yeah. I, so I had a good ear. I could pick out melodies. And mm-hmm. so my mom said, you know, this kid should take piano lessons. So I took piano lessons for 10 years from mm. the same teacher that some of my siblings took from and, right and that was you know i was never like i'm going to be a concert pianist but i just kept doing it because right. i liked it and nice. it was something i did you know and um it was i'm really thankful for that because yeah. that experience has helped me help my ear develop my sense of you know reading and rhythm and pitch and all that is mm. you know i think very strong because of that experience and also i grew up in going to church every week and singing in the youth choirs at my wow. church. And so the singing experience was also super right. helpful. Very formative. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Do you remember much about your early piano lessons and like the structure of how yeah. those went? Yeah. Was it like Suzuki or something else? No, it was very t- traditional, you know, read from the book. And I still have all my books actually. <laughs> and, and I still play, I still you know, get out some of my old Sonatina books and stuff like mm. that and read just for reading practice. Not a lot, but yeah. but I like to. It's a fun thing to do. And um, yeah, my teacher, Alan Ray was his name, and he was a really great teacher, great pianist and teacher. And he was, you know, fairly fairly traditional and strict, but not not a, not super strict. So he, mm. he never made it not fun, you know, so right. I... He would push you, but not too hard. So that I think I, if he had pushed me too hard, I probably would have quit when I was, because I didn't love practicing. But I, you know, my mom would when I was really young. I think I just did it on my own. And then as I got a little older, she would have to remind me. You know, yeah. and, and I remember when I was a teenager, sometimes going, "I think I want to quit." And my mom would always say, "Well, it's up to you." And then I'd feel guilty, and then I wouldn't do it, and I would keep doing it. That's so I funny. stuck with it longer yeah. because I, I just had this, I think, guilt of quitting. And right. I'm glad I did, actually, because even though I did, I wasn't like playing. I did a couple recitals when I was really young, you know, but I didn't, mm. wasn't into that. I was more, once I started playing the band instruments, that was more my main thing. But I right. kept doing the piano just as a supplement. Yeah. And again, really, really glad I did. Sure. That's interesting that you said he kept it fun while still kind of pushing you. And I think that's personally as a teacher of beginners that's uh i find that challenging mm-hmm. like it's writing that line between i think i tend to lean more on the hat let's have fun uh 
for that very reason because I don't. I hopefully hope my hope is that they'll enjoy playing the saxophone and that mm-hmm. they'll you know get joy out of it and not be. But um, that's a tricky thing. Like, do you remember any of what he did to to do that to keep it fun? Like, how did he keep it fun? Well, he would encourage me to compose stuff. Oh wow, which was cool. And I liked doing that, especially when I was really young. I, I, I found, you know, like uh, going through my stuff at my parents' house when they passed away a number of years ago, I found old manuscript books with pieces I had written down. And I was really meticulous, too. Like my, <laughs> my writing is like really clean and clear. And like my name's up in the corner as the composer <laughs> and like the date. And wow. it's all like really, yeah, it's funny. That's awesome. I was really meticulous about it. And it's all super simple stuff, mm-hmm. but I was really interested in like, kind of like, I would write like things based on seventh chords because I liked the sound of that, mm-hmm. I think. So I remember some stuff that was kind of just chordal sounding stuff like that. And, and he encouraged that. So I think that was good. You know, he, right. he encouraged the creative side and encouraged me to explore that. So that was good. Awesome. That's great. And then you made a shift in high school to band instruments. Actually fifth grade. Fifth I started grade. playing flute. Okay. We, there was like after school band that you could start doing in fifth grade. So I started playing flute. I don't know why I was interested in flute. I don't remember that decision <laughs> or why I chose that, but for some reason I did. Uh, um, did you have lessons on flute too, or it was no, just through just band? The, just through band. Yeah. And did that for fifth and sixth grade. And then when I started seventh grade, I think I, yeah, I started, so we had middle school with seventh and eighth grade. Mm. So I started on flute and then somewhere in that seventh grade year, I switched to saxophone and we had a jazz band too. And right. so that was like the, oh, this is right. cool. I want to play saxophone <laughs> in the jazz band. Fun. Yeah. And that was alto. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you have a saxophone teacher or no? Same thing. Just Yeah, I did actually. I started actually my, um, in middle school, we had a, uh, he was, I think, at Fresno State University getting his teaching credential, probably. And he was, so student teaching in our band, and mm. he was a sax, jazz saxophonist. His name's Kenny Polson. I've seen him, <laughs> like, playing gigs in Seattle and stuff now. <laughs> like, he's a professional jazz saxophonist. Wow. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so he kind of helped me and got me turned on to that, and then our um, we had a, our band director was a jazz bass player. So he was really into jazz. And, mm. and then I started studying with a local jazz sax teacher as well, took lessons. And did they, that include improvisation? Yeah, it was mainly improvisation. Uh, what do you remember anything about those? Like what kind of exercises he would give you or mm-hmm. was it, it Jamie Abrasol kind yep, of stuff? Jamie or? Abrasol books and the Jerry Coker book, Patterns, Patterns for, jazz. for Jazz. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the Omni book, Charlie Parker stuff. (laughs) So yeah, so I was just learning all that stuff. Did he ever have you learn solos off recordings? I think he encouraged me to do that. I don't know that I actually did it that much. Yeah. I was not the best practicer. (laughs) So, you know, one of the drawbacks to all that early training is I had a really good ear. Right. And I had really good time. Mm. And so... I picked up stuff really fast. Yeah. And so I didn't have to practice that hard to be good. Right. Which was a little bit of a drawback. 
because you can just be like, oh, you know, I, I'm pretty good. I'm right. better than all these people around me, and I'm not even really working that hard at it. Mm. And it wasn't that I didn't practice, but I wasn't super motivated when it started to become hard to like learn, you know, some of those advanced chord progression yeah. kind of things for improvising. Right. So I had some exposure to that, but I wasn't super mm. motivated to practice. Yeah. Um, so then, you know, I, I t- when people ask why I chose percussion over saxophone or piano or other things, I usually say it chose me <laughs> because I got excited about percussion. I kind of dabbled in it a couple times when mm. I was younger. I took some lessons from a guy at my church for a little while and I mm. took a snare drum home for a <laughs> month or so in elementary school, you know, with a practice pad. And right. So there were these like little dabblings, but when I started high school, which was 10th grade for me, we, we our high school started at 10th grade, I was saxophone player, but the drum line, the second I saw the drum line doing their thing, I was just like, that is what I want to do. I'm going to learn that. And went to my band director. I said, what do I do? How do I learn that? And he told me, well, that see that guy there who's a guy my age, also uh-huh. a sophomore. He said, he's a good drummer. You should talk to him. So I met him. We became great friends. Mm. He started teaching me stuff. And then he was studying with a rudimental snare drum guy. So I started taking lessons with him. Mm. And and like with the saxophone, where I wasn't that motivated to practice so much with percussion, with drumming, I just couldn't stop practicing. Uh. I would go home after school, practice. We would meet at lunch, practice. <laughs> you know, it was, I was just a geek about drumming. It's <laughs> all I wanted to do. So, mm. so that just kind of so you were really motivated because yeah. of the drumline stuff. Yep. And do you remember anything about how you practiced back then? Oh, in yeah. In those early days? Yeah. So the you know I started taking lessons from this guy. And so I took weekly lessons from him. And he would give me kind of rudimental exercises to work on to learn the basic rudiments and mm-hmm. advanced rudiments. And mm-hmm. he was a funny guy. And he would draw pictures in my <laughs> notebook. They were like pictures of these goofy looking guys, but it would show how to move the sticks. They were actually oh, wow. really helpful. They were like, you could, he was a really great artist. So that oh, wow. he would draw these pictures. Do you still have those? I do. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, and they were kind of like instructional, but also funny, you right. know? <laughs> um, kind of cartoon like things. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was like a, it was like a sports thing. Like mm-hmm. we would, we would get together and drum together, you know, like we would get on the practice pads and just play two or three of us, four of us yeah. and just, play these things to get better right and because we liked it so you practice as a group as mm -hmm. well as just by yourself group practice by myself yeah i joined a drum and bugle corps that year um and then marched that whole summer wow and just was addicted to it and (laughs) it was just so fun you know just the whole vibe of it i liked the camaraderie the competition Uh the the practice and the goal of getting fa- faster and better and yeah, cleaner yeah. and all that, you know, yeah. I just really got into that. That's awesome. And never stopped after that. And I still, so I kept playing saxophone for another, you know, five five to eight years probably. But mm-hmm. it was always like, 
I was good enough to play at a certain level without having to work at it too hard, you right. know? And so I kept doing it. But the drumming thing, I just kept yeah. improving. Sounds like the saxophone was more just for fun and yeah. it was a, yeah. Yeah. You were way more focused right. on percussion at that point. And then, so you leave Fresno. Did you have to audition to get into San Diego's? percussion program or how did that go yeah well so in between that i had to get another bachelor's degree in music oh right you don't just go get a master's degree in music without a bachelor's degree in music right correct um unless you're already playing at a you know some incredible level level, you know and i hadn't been doing that you know i'd been playing jazz and rock but i hadn't been doing the you know more concert end of things and um so a couple years after i you know at this time that i was deciding not to do banking. Uh, Jennifer and I decided we were getting married. So we got married. She got accepted to UC Davis for a graduate degree in art history. And so uh, we knew we were moving to that area. Yeah. So I looked at the music program at UC Davis. I looked at the music program at Cal State Sacramento. The one at Sacramento was much more um, performance-based and mm-hmm. had a lot of stuff going on with percussion and performance. And yeah. So I decided to enroll there and do a second bachelor's degree in percussion performance. And was that like two years more or another four years or how long was it? Uh, it took me three years. It okay. really was about two and a half years, but I, you know, because of where I was in it, it just, I was there for three years. Yeah. So I auditioned to get into that and they, you know, I didn't have to come in at freshman level, um, mm. got accepted at a little bit higher level. And, and then I, at that point I was 25 years old, married and, laser focused on what I wanted. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't have to take any general education courses because right. I already had a bachelor's degree. Right. And so most of the, at least at that time when you're getting a second bachelor's degree, all you have to do is the major. The core yeah. of your, your major. Yeah. Yeah. So I did a bachelor of music and performance and did that in three years. And only, it was like being a graduate student almost, you know, cause you only had to <laughs> yeah. focus on music. And you know, one of the greatest things that happened was I went in, you know, I had to sign up for all, you know, theory one, oral <laughs> skills, piano proficiency, mm-hmm. concert attendance, con- you know, wind ensemble, percussion, right. yeah, all the typical things, right? Yeah. So I auditioned and enrolled for all that stuff. And I went to my first day of the piano class and I'm sitting in there going, man, I can do all this. <laughs> so I went to the teacher after the class. I said, hey, um, excuse me, I just want to let you know, I I studied piano for 10 years. He said, oh, well, come here, sit down. And he had me sight read some stuff. He asked me to play some scales. He's like, you have an A, you don't ever have to come back. <laughs> and I was so glad. Wow, that's I was awesome. so thrilled by that. And right. I, I remember I wrote my former piano teacher a letter <laughs> and I told him, I'm, I've gone back to school, I'm studying music and I was able to test out of my piano course. Thank you uh. so much for those piano lessons. <laughs> he wrote back to me and was really thrilled. That's and, awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Was it a was it a big shift into from drum course stuff into more like mallet work and traditional percussion? Was that a challenge for you or was it pretty seamless transition? It was fairly seamless. I you know, I had done some of that. I played of course in the concert band yeah. in high school and I did some youth orchestra stuff. Um, and because of my piano skills, picking up marimba wasn't... I had, So first of all, I had good hands. I had good technique from mm. playing rudimental snare drum. I had good time. I had really good reading skills from playing piano. So learning to play marimba wasn't 
wasn't that hard for me. Yeah. I'm, you know, learning the four mallet techniques and all that, of course, is a, a lot of work. But yeah. But some a lot of my colleagues were like, I'm learning ba- how to read bass clef, you know, or <laughs> yeah. how to read more than one note at a time. And I was just like, wow. <laughs> Again, right. really thankful for those piano lessons. For those formative. Yeah. yeah. So it, it was, um, yeah, it was a shift because now I had to, you know, work on all of those instruments. But I had good, um, I had good discipline from yeah. the training, the drum corps thing and the, just my 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 attitude towards percussion once I really got into it. So mm-hmm. I, I didn't have a discipline problem of practicing, and I, you know, had uprooted my whole life to go do this, <laughs> and luckily had a very supportive partner and a very supportive family. Yeah, and you know, she and I both worked through school. We put ourselves through school. Our families helped, you know, but it, yeah. and we were able to, you know, get scholarships and assistantships that helped a lot too. But yeah. You know, we we worked hard. Yeah, we worked really hard, and and we're you know had to from that point on be really good about time management and mm-hmm. just figuring out. Right, that. but I think at twenty five years old, you're a little more prepared to do that. You know, you, yeah, you're. I'd already had sure. a career. You know, that was. You know, some people might have thought, "Why are you leaving this good career to go do music?" And yeah, I was like, "I'm leaving to do what I really want to do," and now <laughs> I'm ready. You know. Right. Yeah. It's a much different story at 25 than yeah. 20 or 21 mm-hmm. even. But I, I'm i guessing that there was less group practice at that point and more like you just you solo in the practice room. Yeah. And would you, how would you organize? Do you remember back then, like how you organized your practice? Was it pretty structured or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was very structured. Um, we li- we lived in Davis, which is about a half hour drive from Sacramento, mm-hmm. and so I had to go to I had to practice in Sacramento for the most part. Um, you know, I could do practice pad at home, but that was about right. it. So I, I had to really plan when I was going in, when I was practicing, when I was coming home, all that. Mm-hmm. And percussionists, I think, have to learn to be focused about practice in a little bit different way than some people, just because our instruments, we usually don't own all of our instruments, right. and they're at the school, and we have to be at school to practice, you know? Yeah. I think, you know, as a saxophonist, I could practice at home, so I, I didn't have that same pressure of, mm-hmm. okay, I have to plan this really carefully, Yeah. You know? Um. So, yeah, so we had okay practice facilities at that school you know we had a few rooms that we mm. could sign out and so it was yeah just about being pretty organized and pretty early on i got hired to teach at a high school in sacramento mm. so i was not only going to school there i was also teaching in yeah. sacramento and so that also had to fit into the schedule <laughs> but that was a pretty structured schedule because you know the kids were in school at certain times their mm-hmm. band class and practices met at certain times so right it was pretty pretty easy to organize that from what i remember yeah did you write out a routine did you have like like actually write down like okay i'm going like you know you're leaving your place in davis you're going to sacramento was it something you would write down or do you just kind of like knew in your head like okay this is what i'm gonna go Mm -hmm. work on i think it was some of both early on it was probably a little more in my head but pretty soon i um definitely started keeping some kind of calendar. I don't remember when I, I was a Palm Pilot user. Oh, right. Remember those? <laughs> yes. 
I don't remember when the when that was though. Well, right. That was later, like graduate yeah. school. It was probably later. Might be. Yeah. I might have used just like a you know pencil and paper planner at that point. I don't remember honestly when I started doing stuff electronically. Mm-hmm. But I'm. I think first of all, I'm a procrastinator by nature, <laughs> um, especially on things like written schoolwork or papers yeah. or things like that. And um, so I, I know that about myself. So I know if I can plan things and have a schedule, I'm much better about getting mm. things done. Um, and I think just because my life was complicated enough that I had to have a schedule that I was good about keeping to a schedule. Right. Whether, I, honestly, I don't remember now if it was written down or it probably was in some yeah. form written down at that point. But, and I, you know, I started playing gigs pretty soon when I got there, started getting referred to play gigs. So, you know, when you're going to school, teaching, yeah. playing gigs, if you don't have a calendar, you're doomed. Right. You know, you're just absolutely doomed. <laughs> so I'm sure I was keeping a, probably just a, a day planner. Oh, I yeah. actually remember. Yeah, it was. It was those things. What were they called? Yeah. Um, day planner. Day planner. Yeah. yeah yep. That's what I used to have. Yeah, yeah. I totally forgot about those till just right now. I think my mom gave me one of those at some point and I used them from then on. Yeah, day yeah. planner. So that's what I did. So when you entered the practice room in Sacramento, you had a really clear idea of what what you were trying to accomplish in, say, 90 minutes or two hours or mm-hmm. however much time you had. Yep. Most of the time. All the time. Yeah, yeah. all the time. <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, it was working on, a, you know, you're learning, you're simultaneously working on snare drum pieces and marimba and mm-hmm. vibraphone and multiple percussion and timpani. And, right. You know, it, there's, so there's a lot of stuff to juggle. So you, 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 you know, it's, it's a, I think a good thing because you always know you're going to go in, okay, I'm going to work on this piece or I need to work on this technique or, yeah. you know, you're, it helps you inform that. It also means you can be pretty scattered if you're not careful. Mm. Um, and then different rooms have different instruments in them. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, that, that also guides you a little bit. It's like, okay, I have the big room today, and that's where my big setup for this piece is, so I know yeah. I need to work on that. Yeah. Do you find that um, with your students now, um, do they have, like, you were really motivated and you had this really tight schedule um, I'm imagining not all your students have that same right. pressure. So, like, how do you guide the ones that have, like, maybe their parents are paying for the whole thing, or they don't have to work a second job, or mm-hmm. you know, how how do you guide them in their in their practice? Yeah, uh, I try to get them to write down a schedule to keep a schedule and the younger ones, especially that's a harder thing for them. They're just not used to doing that. (laughs) Um, but I tell them, you know, keep a calendar and put your practice time in there, like schedule your practice time. And, you know, we have several practice studios at SOU, Southern Oregon university where I teach. And, um, they're, they have, you know, good space and good instruments available to use. And sometimes that can get taken for granted, you know? So I tell them, sign up on the doors of the studios so that you know you have the time booked put that in your calendar so you remember that you have it booked and you know commit to using that time Mm. Um, because it's easier to just let it go if you don't schedule it and then you know then the day goes by and it's now eight o'clock and you're like tired and don't want to go back and practice you know yeah so i really try to encourage them to start keeping a calendar early on right um 
and I've gone back and forth over the years with using like practice planners and mm-hmm. having them keep practice logs. Yeah. And, and that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. I find it's a really individual thing, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. with students. Some students that works well for and other students it doesn't <laughs> work so well for. Sure. Um, one thing I've been doing the last few years that I really like is I keep a Google Sheet for each of one of my students that has, um, it's basically like the date, a little description of what we worked on in the lesson, mm. a, another column that's a description for what they're expected to work on for the next lesson, and then a grade for the lesson. And I, I didn't do this for many years, grade each lesson. You would think <laughs> that it's a class. You have to grade every assignment they do, right? But I think for most of us who teach private lessons, we don't. Some of us do that, some don't. You yeah, know, And you have this yeah. more kind of, you know, subjective view a little bit over overall of what what you think the you know final grade ends up being or what their efforts been over the yeah. term and i think that can be risky mm-hmm. um but it also doesn't give you or the student regular feedback so yeah. so what i've started doing is i not only do i give them a grade at the end of their lesson i ask themselves to give themselves a grade oh wow and that's cool that's based on their preparation for the lesson and the lesson itself. And they almost always give themselves a lower grade than I give them. <laughs> Not always, <laughs> but almost always. And Interesting. I really like that process because it, you know, I just make sure to leave some time at the end of the lesson to do that. We talk about what they're going to be working on over the next week. And, and then, uh, you know, I just say, what's your, what's your grade for the day? And, you know, early on I yeah. explained to them, you're going to be doing this, but you right. know, now they're just used to it. What's your grade? You know, and they, they really sit there and think about it. Wow. And some of them will like talk through the week, you know, and well, I did this and I got to, you know, and, uh, and, and then they, they arrive at a number or a grade, you know, and, and, you know, and I just put that in there. And at the end of the term, I don't usually use that as part of their final sure. grade, but my spreadsheet I've created shows like, it shows the total grade that I've given them, and then it shows it weighted with my grade and their grade combined. Then the graduate students also give them some lessons during the term, uh-huh. and I throw that in there so they can see all these different computations of what their wow. grade would be. You know, <laughs> and again at the at the end, I'm pr- you know, it's pretty clear to me what their grade should be. But I find that to be a helpful process, yeah. um, and mostly for them to reflect on their you know, preparation and performance in the lesson and to go through that process of giving themselves kind of a score, you know, right. I've found to be uh, really helpful. That's awesome. It gives them a little more responsibility. To right. Be, Some know, like, ownership okay, around it. Yeah. Like, okay, I really should have worked on this harder. I think I only got a C this week. You know, <laughs> I need to do work harder on this to get that up, you know? Right. Wow. Do you have any, um, I know you take, some private students outside the university, but uh, occasionally, I don't think you have many. I actually right? don't anymore. Yeah. I used to a lot. Um, I used to teach a lot of mainly high school students, but mm-hmm. sometimes younger students and sometimes adult students. Mm-hmm. And I've pretty much stopped doing that over the last, I would say, four years. And that's just mainly because of time. Yeah. <laughs> um, because over the last four to eight years, I've also become busier and busier with my own performing um both you know here in the area and and outside the area yeah and my my groups here you know we started a graduate program six years ago and yeah. that takes up a lot of time yeah 
and left edge percussion, which is all of my graduate students. That group is very active, very busy by design. Yeah. And so I just decided that that was something that needed to go Yeah. to make room in my own sanity for <laughs> everything else. And the other thing that, that happened was, you know, when I first came here, there weren't a whole lot of other percussion teachers in the area. And now I have several graduates of my program that have stayed in the area. Mm. There's several other, you know, yeah. people in the area who are great teachers. And so I feel like now I don't have to, you know, I'm not like letting someone down. Right. If I can't take them, there's plenty of good people they can yeah. study with. You don't have to fill the void yeah. so much anymore. Yeah. So, so that, that has yeah. helped that a lot. When you did have those non-university students, was it a different, did you use that same, well, you said you've only been doing that grading thing recently, but like, how did you, how did you manage them differently or was it pretty much the same as your university students? Again, very individual. Yeah. Depends on the, the student and their goals, you know. If it's an adult student who's just wanting to do it for fun or yeah. improve on a certain thing, then, you know, I really try to tailor it for their goals. Yeah. If it were as a high school student who was interested in, you know, being able to get into a university percussion program, then that has a different kind of goal. Yeah. You know, you need to be at a certain level to realize that goal. So sure. then I would push them, you know, in a, in a way to help them realize that. I think I've, you know, I'm always learning about getting better as a teacher. It's yeah. a constant, constant process. And, um, the, first of all, like we've already said, it's a really individual thing. So mm -hmm. every student, there's different things that work for different students, yeah. um, different ways of communicating, different ways of motivating, but then there's skills I feel like they should all have at the same yeah. time, you know? So you, you, it's like this. It's not a one size fits all, but there's some, you know, some things that I feel like are important for them right. all to get. Fundamentals. Yeah. yeah. So it's about finding, for me, it's about finding a good balance of making sure the student is motivated, that they're realizing their own goals. We always set goals at the beginning of every kind of term, right? So we yeah. talk about what are the goals for the term? What is it that you want to work on or that I think you need to work on? And we talk about that together and we write those down. Um, and then finding ways to make sure they're meeting those goals without burning out. Yeah. Um, but also staying motivated mm. and, you know, and having fun, like enjoying yeah. it. That's so important. <laughs> that the reason I, I think most of us get into music is because we love it. We enjoy doing yeah. it. It's yeah. a beautiful, amazing experience. And if you're not enjoying it, then maybe something you need to do something else right. or it's, the approach isn't right or something, right. you know, and yeah. we all have times when we're, you know, we're <laughs> under some deadline and okay, I don't, this isn't fun, but I have to get it done. That's different, you know, yeah. but overall it should be right. fun and enlightening and stimulating and motivating. And so that's a constant challenge for me is figuring out for each student, each student, how to balance yeah. that and how to make that work. Cause they're all different. Everybody's yeah. different. Yeah. They are so different. <laughs> Yeah. So true. Was there uh, was there a moment in like uh, undergrad? I'm thinking about your music degrees or your grad school, where your playing really took a big jump, mm. or your skill really like you know, like it was a noticeable like, oh wow, like I just went to the next level. And if so, would did something shift in your 
in your preparation or practice or methodology or I don't know anything mm. that comes to mind or was it more of a steady steady um you know increase in your skills right. over that's a good question. I don't know that I can think of any like watershed moments of being like, oh, wow, I'm really good at that now. You know, <laughs> um, I think it's been more steady. I mm. think, um, I think we tend to like have aha moments, but the getting there is a steady process. <laughs> yeah. You know, like suddenly you realize, suddenly you realize, oh, this used to be really hard, and now it's not so hard anymore. Right. But it. It wasn't, you know, one thing that made it happen. Sure. It's that gradual process of yeah. just keeping at it. Um, Can you think of any of those aha moments? Any of them that stand out <laughs> for you? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, well, I can think of, yeah, I can maybe think of a few. You know, about... How long have I been doing flamenco now? Yeah, I was curious about either the flamenco um, or the Indian classical music. If Yeah, I think the flamenco thing, since it's most recent, kind of comes to mind. I guess I've been doing flamenco for maybe about 12 years. And, you know, uh, when I first started, it was a new thing. It was a new language. It was a mm. new musical form i got interested in it because i had a cajon that was given to me as a gift by some students and i mm. thought i should learn something about flamenco because i know <laughs> they use this and i when i was in grad school jen and i used to go to flamenco shows in downtown san diego and i always loved it mm. and nice. so a uh, local guitarist and singer here grant ruiz i heard he was teaching some flamenco classes so i decided to go check it out and we hit it off became friends started playing together and not long after that, within a year, I had a sabbatical. I ended up going to Spain, spent a month over there, um, hooked up with a couple of percussionists there, did some studying, did a lot of hanging out, did a lot of listening to mm. live music events and going to rehearsals with one of them and just soaking up as much as I could. Yeah. And then, but didn't do a lot of playing when I was there, you know, other than hanging out with them a little bit. Yeah. Um, but then I came back and started working on that stuff. And Grant like heard an instant change. He's like, wow, it's like you have an accent now. You know, it's like you'd been immersed in the language now yeah. instead of just trying to pick it up you sure. know, from other ways. And so, you know, there are moments like that when you're, sometimes you're not even practicing that hard, but you're just thinking really hard about something mm. yeah. or you're listening a lot yeah. to immersing yourself in something where your your playing can take a huge step, um, and in this case, it was a combination of practicing, playing, listening, being around it, mm. um, kind of soaking it up on a, a lot of different levels that yeah. that just made like this. And I didn't notice it happening so much, <laughs> right? But people who heard me before and after heard, heard it a big like difference instantly. Yeah. yeah. So that that's I think a good example of that. Yeah. And I think those are the kind of things like we, when we go in the practice room every day and we're like working on, you know, some of our fundamental things, we forget that those things 
come out in our playing in all kinds of ways. I think jazz musicians know this better than anyone because yeah. they know, you know, working on your scales and your arpeggios and all those things that end up becoming part of your language when you improvise mm-hmm. are really important. And some w- people who aren't necessarily improvisers, I think sometimes we forget that, yeah, all that stuff comes out in the music, you know. Yeah. I think especially for young players where so much they're juggling you know they're yeah. they're like taking math and english and science and music <laughs> theory for the first time you know students are coming to university with not a lot of exposure to music theory or yeah. oral training yeah. you know and so they're learning all this stuff at, at a, a more advanced age and then they're practicing their scales on their instrument and they're learning to play pieces and sometimes connecting all the dots and that stuff is a little bit hard, even though they, they like hear about it. Mm. This is all part of the same thing, you know, but just like realizing that it really is and just kind of relaxing and opening up and letting yourself, um, experiences those, those different synapses all feeding the same end product. That's a a hard thing to conceptualize, (laughs) but you can sometimes later just kind of go, Oh, right. Hey, right. That's why all these things are, yeah. a lot of listening for your students or do they listen a bunch they do i don't prescribe as much i'm trying to do that more and more that's something i haven't done as much as i think i should um that being said i have been doing it for a while i create like a list here's a repertoire we're going to be working on like with the ensemble and i Mm. give them a whole list of you know youtube links they can listen to for you know different versions of pieces that i think are worth hearing or um, but I think students are pretty good about that these days too. Yeah. You know, like so it's amazing accessible. now how with the accessibility of everything, they're they're coming in like, oh yeah, I like this guy's version of this piece, you know, or I listen to this piece and I like it. It's, it's a sometimes a detriment because they hear this <laughs> one version and they think that's the that's definitive the version, you know. Yeah. Um, so I try to get them to listen to different versions and compare them and yeah. and then come up with their own interpretations too. Um, but yeah, I think it's important. I mean, it's something that we did coming up, you know, like we listened to albums and we yeah. transcribed solos and we, um, you um, know, we, we slowed records down or yeah, tried yeah. to do that. Right. Or t- slowed the tape player down, tried mm. to figure out, you know, how to transcribe. And now it's so much easier to do all that stuff. Yeah. The technology, but, is... but they're also, there's so much more competing for their time. Now yeah. I think that it makes it hard. Do you play in the lesson with them? Like, mm-hmm. do you mod- do you find that really important to model for them in the lesson? I do not all the time. Depends, um, but I do. Yeah, uh, and I think it depends on the situation, what it is they're working on, and uh, the level. And yeah, but I but I do do that. Yeah, yeah. I find it about ba- that's another balance thing mm-hmm. for me in lesson, especially as a wind instrument. And I'm sure it's similar for percussion too, but the tone is, I don't know, I think about tone differently with percussion mm-hmm. than wind, but um, because of the embouchure and whatnot. But I, I, especially early on, I try to model, and I find that they actually play better mm-hmm. 
at least the, for the first few lessons, if I'm playing along with them. And I'm thinking more about middle school and high school. I don't have many yeah. college students. <laughs> but even yeah. some of the, when I when I've, uh, was the sabbatical replacement for Rhett and taught his students, I would do that mm-hmm. sometimes too. Yeah. And I've had, I've had teachers who did that, you know, on everything. And I've had <laughs> teachers who never played in a lesson with me. You right. Know? And... And they were both, you know, they were all good experiences. Yeah. So I, I think, yeah, like you said, it really depends on the student and the situation. Um, one thing I've found myself doing more and more that that I like and I find to be really helpful for them is asking more questions in their lessons ah. and not telling them, resisting telling them you should do it like this or <laughs> try it like this, but asking them a question in a way that gets them to think about what I'm trying to get them to do, but mm-hmm. to come at, to figure it out by themselves. Right. I really like that. <laughs> um, it's hard for me because I'm like a, I'm a pretty rapid fire thinker. <laughs> and then sometimes it's really easy for me to just go, Oh, do this, you know? Right. And, but I find that I think they get more out of it if mm. they can really think about process, even come to the wrong answer, maybe a few times, you know? the thing I'm trying to get them to do, or maybe they come up with a better idea than I had to begin with, right. you know, but I, I think that process of figuring it out themselves is something they're missing in modern life more and more. Right. Discovery yeah. of what, yeah, because right. Everything is at your fingertips right now. Right. The answer to everything. Yes. Is... So I'm trying to resist that in my own <laughs> teaching and like, just like when I'm, when they're doing something that I know, okay, this I'm like thinking, how can I ask them something to get them to think about this in a way to come around to the eventual, you know, um, it's hard sometimes, but I I like the process. I like, and it challenges me in a different way, which I like as a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. But it also really gets them to think more deeply about, and then I think it's more meaningful when they can really have that process of figuring it out. Yeah. I can see that where it's, they, it's their, they're kind of owning their own, Mm -hmm growth their own that can be that's really great and i um often i'll have students when i've done that i'll have them go well what do you like you know Mm -hmm. there's like this they want to defer back to you right and it's like no really what yeah yeah (laughs) or they're trying to give you the right answer you know instead of like yeah this is what they think what do you ever have the situation i'm sure you do where stylistically or interpretively they're doing something that you would never do, but that you honor their interpretation of it. Oh yeah. Yeah. That happens a lot actually. And sometimes they win me over too. And I end up going, you know what? You were right about that. I actually really like that. Now that happened this last year. I remember there was a student who, and it was like his own composition too, you know? So it was kind of like, right. Well, I don't know if I would do it that way, but you know, it's your piece. So, right. And then later on I was like, you know what? He's right. That's, I really like that. Um, but yeah, I, and sometimes I'll approach that like, you know, well, you know, that this is your interpretation. I might not do it that way. Someone else might not agree with that, but ultimately, you know, it's your decision about how to do that. And those can be tricky ones because, you know, we're all, I think by nature, we're very opinionated about what we like and don't like, but, but I'd like to let the student own it, you know? Yeah. I think that's really valuable. We do a lot of, 
a lot of peer-to-peer work in our studio too. So we have studio classes, and I I'm always letting the students offer feedback and ensemble rehearsals mm-hmm. and things too. And and in in our studio classes, when we meet as a group and they perform for each other, as a general rule, I never talk until everybody else has until had a chance. End. That's yeah. smart. I That's always really wait smart. until the end. Sometimes I won't even say anything. If like you know, um, but I. And it's funny because you're usually a student or two who always has to be the first one to say something, you know, <laughs> their hands up as soon as this performance is over. Um, and others who sit back and don't offer much, mm. but when they do, there's some real jewels, you know, yeah. and, and I really like to let them lead those, those discussions. And even if I don't agree with what they're saying, I just let it all play out. And, and then if I feel like something needs to be redirected, I'll do that. Or if mm. I need to make a point that wasn't made or just, you know, agree and move on, whatever, you know. But right. I really like to let them have that time to feel safe about, you know, uh, their their opinions and their thoughts. And Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's been, awesome. a, been a really good process to, yeah. to step back from that more. Right. That's awesome. Do you, um, I'm just thinking about, I'm sure you read or heard about Malcolm Gladwell's thing about 10,000 hours, that Mm -hmm. that's like what it takes to achieve mastery. Do you, does that resonate with you or do do you even care about that? Or is (laughs) it like, I'm just curious your thoughts on like that whole thing. Like it just, there's just, uh. I'm not sure for myself if I actually believe it, but I'm just, Mm -hmm. I'm curious what other people think about that, that it takes X number of hours to reach mastery on, as a, as a musician and a certain instrument or. I I don't disagree with it. I think my old school, certainly coming out of that rudimental drumming thing, you know, that's about lots of hours and playing and lots of repetition and, and, you know, as long as you're doing something, you know, and I hate to even use the word correctly, <laughs> right? But okay, if we want to go old school, as long as you're doing it correctly and you're yeah. doing it over and over, then yeah, you're going to benefit from it. But even that's, and you know, I, I, I don't find myself speaking in those kinds of terms sure. that much anymore. Um, you know, there's, I, I've just seen so many people with such different approaches to things that I think are absolutely brilliant that I'm a little less, um, strict i think Mm -hmm. with that anymore that being said there are certain things that take technical mastery that you know there's i think more than one way to get there but there are proven ways to get there yeah yeah um i also you know i've been reading and listening to victor wooten stuff a little bit oh yeah you know the last year or so and man I, i have to say i really connect with his whole philosophy about you know the way we learn to speak a language yeah compared to the way we teach music. Right. I think he he's really hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. You know, and I think about the way I learned to play music is a, a lot closer to the way I learned to speak language right. than a, a lot of people do who come to it later or in a different path. Or, so I think, I think there's some truth there. Like, I don't remember learning the notes. I don't remember learning a quarter note versus an eighth note. I don't remember yeah. learning bass clef. Right. I did it so young that... I just learned it, yeah. you know, and um, so I th- obviously there's I, th- I think there's a, a strong thing there about just the idea of jamming, about pl- mm. playing with people, and yeah. just experiencing music. You know, if you 
only do that and don't like work on some specific skills and maybe, you know, you're limiting yourself obviously. But I think we don't do enough of that in our kind of codified way of teaching of just Mm. like hanging out, playing, jamming, experimenting, seeing what happens, not telling someone that's wrong. That's right. That's the way to do it. You know? Yeah. Um, I think that I really think his Ted talk about that is quite brilliant. Have you read his book? I haven't, I'm reading it now. Actually, yeah. I got kind of, I was started it and got stopped and yeah. on to some, I do that sometimes. I'm reading like three books yeah. at the same yeah. time and then one gets shelved for a while while I'm finishing another one or, yeah. so I'm, I'm not even halfway through it. I, I started reading it and then, um, got turned on to the Ted talk and read some other stuff that his articles and things. Yeah. And, and I need to come back and, and finish the yeah. book. But I saw him perform about a year ago for the first time. And I was blown away. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Wow. Just unbelievable. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, the the idea of just growing up in a musical family and jamming with his brothers. Right. Not being told this is the way to do it. This is the way to do it. doing it, you know. Yeah. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, that's how we all learn to speak, right? Right. And, and you know, I've had ups and downs with learning the Spanish language, and I'm nowhere near fluent, but I know I'm... I do better in that mode. Like when I go to a Spanish speaking country and Mm -hmm. I'm there for a while, or I do a, a more, you know, listening based approach versus you know, learning grammar out of a book and that kind of thing. So I, I really connect with that. Yeah, I do too. I've always thought about, um, well, not always, but I guess from when I was an undergrad and my teacher, Steve Owen talked about music as a language and, and I, I've, I really took that to heart, and I think about that with my beginners. Because I teach a lot of beginner students, and and I, I, I shy away from teaching them um, any sort of theory as as long as possible, mm-hmm. just to get them to play melodies. One, it's fun; they can go home and just start playing. Look, mom, I can play "Twinkle Twinkle Little Star" or whatever. But also from that standpoint of like. Yeah, it's a language, and we've. It's only been recently that music has been, um, uh, for lack of a better word, institutionalized. Where it's like people used to sit around and sing and play the guitar and play the piano, and you know, it was it was not a it was not a thing to be a musician. There right. were just families and whole communities would make music, right? And now. <laughs> Now it's like you're either a musician or you're not. You know, right. people are afraid to participate if they're quote not a musician. Right. You know? And I think that's really sad. It is sad. That we don't have that culture of just hanging out and singing and playing with each other and so you know about a year and a half ago I did this course in uh, facilitation of it's called health rhythms. And oh, right. I remember that. Yeah. And I thought it was a drum circle facilitation course. And it turns out it was a facilitation course using the drum as a tool. Mm. Um, and I learned so much from that. And I've been incorporating that into my teaching and my ensemble work and, and using some of that as a sometimes nothing more than just a chance to, hey, let's just hang out and jam. Right. And so this last year, for our very first meeting in the fall, we just, I just set up a whole bunch of drums in a circle, and we all came in, and I just 
I let them start playing. We, we didn't even say a word to each other. And you know, there were new faces in the room we didn't know. And then, yeah. you know, it was just like, I want to start with music. You know, before anyone says a word, this is this class, this is what we're going to do, you know, all that boring stuff. I just wanted to make some sound with these right. people. And yeah. it was great. I loved it. We That's did it again at the beginning of the next term. We've done it a few times throughout That's the term. Awesome. And, I, and so I've been enjoying that, you know, connecting with that idea of, you know, using music more <laughs> as music. <laughs> as music, not just, yeah. Not just, you know, this formalized thing all the time. Right. How is it different for you in your professional groups? So, like, the stuff you do with Tessa or um, with some of the other, you know, your colleagues or peers when you're preparing? I mean, not that... You know, the graduate level stuff you're doing with your students is, I would say, professional level. So mm-hmm. you're, I know you, you play with them too, but, um, what is your preparation like now? Or how, I guess p- two parts. What is, what does your preparation look like now for those sorts of things? And then also, how do you, um, in, in those situations deal with like differing interpretation or how do you, Mm-hmm. You know, how do you come to um, agreement? Mm-hmm. So those kind of two aspects, preparation and that yeah. part. Well, so, you know, I have a few different projects I'm involved in. Um, so Cabito Negro with Tessa, we've been now playing together as a duo for about 12 years. And, uh, uh, we, you know, we we work really well together and really easily together. And we ha- we share some things in our backgrounds, but we have some different things in our trainings as mm-hmm. well. And so when we're working on new projects, we will generally, you know, kind of get a, get a sense of a piece together. We'll read it together mm-hmm. and kind of rehearse a little bit, play around with things, try things. And then depending on, you know, if it's something like, okay, this is like something I can't read this because it's <laughs> too many new instruments on new staves and... It's going to take, I need several hours of practice before I can even do this. I'll just say that, you know, like, okay, I need some time before I can sit down with you and work on this. Um, Or she may say the same, but but it's often because of me and there being, you know, multiple instruments on different states. That's one of the things about being a (laughs) multi-percussionist is your music looks different for every piece. Right. Um, So we'll... um, we will, uh, you know, usually kind of get a sense of a piece together and then commit to working on things independently and then making goals for the next rehearsal period and say, okay, on X day, we're going to work on these pieces. We're going to do these things. Um, so we're both really good about just being clear about what our expectations are. And we don't, sometimes we come to rehearsal and go, okay, I had a bad week and I didn't work on this as hard as I should have. And, and full disclosure, full disclosure. And you know, we, there's never a like, oh, well, it's just like, okay, well, let's just do what we can, you know, or let's do some business. Let's get some business done because there's always that kind of stuff to do too. But we're, we're actually pretty efficient about getting stuff done and working together and figuring out what our goals of practice sessions and things are going to be. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then just kind of trying to be realistic about how long it's going to take to get something ready. And mm-hmm. we always have a bunch of different irons in the fire. So <laughs> several different concert programs we can work on or have ready. Jen just walked in. Hi, Jen. Hi, Jen. <laughs> you don't have to be so quiet. <laughs> We're not live. <laughs> oh yeah, sure. 
<laughs> All right. I just enjoyed watching you that try to be funny. stealthy. <laughs> that was really funny. Um, yeah, so for instance, we have coming up this season a new piece we're going to be working on with Left Edge Percussion. Oh, okay. It's a piece for percussion quartet with flute and percussion soloists. It's about an hour-long, nine-movement work with mm. electronics and video, and it's going to be a huge project. Um, and Tess is also traveling part of the fall, so we know we're going to be putting it together in the uh, early winter. Probably yeah. Left Edge Percussion will start working on it in the fall, um, and then we'll start folding her into it in the early winter and be performing it in, like, March. Oh, cool. But, you know, we'll we'll have everything planned yeah we're really meticulous about planning all of our you know like when we have dress rehearsals we you know plan all of our movement between pieces and mm. there's often often a lot of moving parts right. and different things that we are really quite diligent about making sure we're doing efficiently and doesn't right. interrupt the performance and get in the way of things yeah that's tricky i was noticing that i mean i i, I think i notice it almost every time i go to a percussion concert at the college, like the logistics of, <laughs> of it, um, you know, and then adding in like the, the last one I saw was the, the group from Guanajuato, mm-hmm. um, joined you or some of them, you mm-hmm. played one of their pieces and I was thinking, wow, it's so much to coordinate with different people and all a stage full of instruments and, you know, I'm like, geez, how do you, <laughs> yeah, there, how do you manage all that? There's a lot of time that goes into all that planning yeah. and thinking about flow between pieces Transition. and transitions. And, you know, ultimately it's about the music and the, I like to think of, you know, concert programming from the sense of, you know, the whole evening, the whole yeah. event. So it's important to me that the pieces work well together so the music comes first, and then how do you make the music work together? And if you've got difficult transitions between pieces, I, tr- I try to avoid that as much as possible, but sometimes you just can't. And yeah. so sometimes then we might insert, you know, this, this is a good time to just talk to the audience right. and, talk, and talk about some of the pieces and, you know, and, and cover a set change. And or other times we might use narratives and texts or video or different kinds of things to bridge those gaps. But mm. it's always a with the end goal of having, you know, the complete performance feel like it makes sense as a, right. as a production artistically and yeah, that things flow. as you're so we're in the middle of summer now and and um do you have next year's um programming already kind of in your head and knowing what you're going to do for fall winter and spring term and well yeah it's not in my head or right? it would it would be out <laughs> you ever written no down? Way, yeah it's all written down um and it's not a hundred percent decided but it's getting pretty close yeah. and I have several guest artists I'm bringing um we just got invited uh, just over just over a week ago, we got invited to go and perform at the Bang on a Can Festival yeah, in New York City so in May. So that's um, 
you know, that's okay. Here's two pieces I wasn't planning on doing <laughs> that they want us to do. So now how am I fitting that into the mix? Mm. Um, so yeah, so I've got the majority of it all figured out the different concerts when they're happening, all the dates are on the calendar, guest artists, repertoire. Yeah, so yeah. there's just a few, a few things to yeah. fill in, but yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> I'll be making my season announcement next month about awesome. the whole season. Yeah. So is it a different mindset or different preparation when you're conducting, when you're leading all those people than it is? I'm sure that's, there is some differences, but, um, cause a different kind of performance. Yeah. Yep. The, you know, the artistic direction of each of those things. Cause I'm, uh, everything I'm involved in except for one, I'm either the artistic director or the co-artistic director. <laughs> and the one that I'm not is the flamenco group I play in, Flamenco Pacifico. And that's one of the things I love about being in that group is that I'm not the artistic director and I can let them plan that part and right. I, I just get to show up and play. Um, but all the other groups, yeah, so whether it's Caballito Negro and planning our season and projects we're going to be doing, so Tess and I are planning those things together, or Left Edge Percussion that I'm pretty much you know planning myself with input from the students from time to time. Mm. Um, or the SOU percussion ensemble, which I'm, um, also planning with input from them. And yeah, so it's, it's a lot of hats. It's a lot of different things, but, um, they're all things I'm really passionate about. So I enjoy it. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to move to some kind of more rapid fire. Oh, the the high pressure questions. (laughs) What do you think is the biggest challenge that your, that your students face? What's the one biggest challenge that they have in practice related to practice? Time management. Yeah. Time management. That's the biggest challenge because <laughs> they just have, most of them are working and they're taking a lot of classes and they're trying to do performances mm-hmm. and play in a lot of ensembles and play a lot of instruments and yeah, time management is the hardest thing. And play gigs. Yeah. Also. Yep. Perform. Yeah. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And so that ties into scheduling and like really being, yeah, teaching them how to do yeah, that. Yeah, and just being, you know, we talk a lot in the lessons about when you when you go into the practice room, <laughs> have a goal, right? You know, have a goal. It might that goal might change during your practice session, and that's okay. But have a goal, right? You know, like go in there with an idea of what you want to accomplish and work on yeah. it. And, yeah, yeah. Don't mess around. Yeah. Well, but I mean, do messing mess around's around. good too. You know, I want them to mess around, right? But, yeah, it's tricky, you know, and yeah. oftentimes that practice session for some of them, it might be one hour or two hours, Yeah, you know, and so then you, man, that goes by so fast if you don't have an idea of what you want to accomplish and, yeah. and yeah. Um, what, if you could go back to Terry Longshore at, um, at Sacramento entering that program, what, what advice would you give him now? Hmm in retrospect or yeah what would you want to say to him <laughs> as a musician uh i would say don't take anything for granted every experiencing every experience you're having you're learning from i think i actually figured that out pretty quickly but not i don't think quickly enough yeah um there were certainly some experiences i had that i wasn't enjoying and um, could have 
gotten more out of if I just adjusted my mindset a little bit. Yeah. So I think, you know, every experience we're in as musicians, we can learn something from. Yeah. And it's also, you know, I tell my students a lot, you never know who's listening or watching (laughs) when you're in any, you know, even if you're in the practice room alone, you know, you don't know who's outside the door listening to you. And, (laughs) you know, when you're in a rehearsal in some school ensemble that maybe you don't want to be in, you don't know who else is in that ensemble that could be like an important person for you someday. And how you conduct yourself in that group is really important. So um, I don't have any regrets along those lines, but I, I think the... Um, just realizing that early on that, okay, there's something, something to be learned here. Right. Everything you're in and there's just being open, being open to that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, what music most sparks your interests right now? Like what, what genre or what um, mm. thing are you like most like curious about or what's the itch you want to scratch yeah. <laughs> that you have? Actually, yet? <laughs> interestingly, and maybe it's a reflection on just where I'm at right now with things, but I'm right now I'm most drawn to listening to the kind of music that I'm playing. And that has usually not been the case for me other than flamenco, you mm-hmm. know, or jazz when I was playing, I don't, I haven't played jazz in years now. Yeah. When I was playing a lot of jazz, I was listening to a lot of jazz, but I've always listened to a lot of jazz. And I would, you know, like a couple of years ago, I would have said, oh, I'm listening to jazz, I'm listening to snarky puppy or, <laughs> you know, um, Esperanza Spalding, that kind yeah. of thing, you know, for inspiration. And I still do listen to jazz for inspiration. But I'm also now listening to a lot of contemporary percussion music, chamber music, the kind of stuff that I'm playing. And mm. that always hasn't always been the case for me, and that was yeah. probably a problem. I needed to be listening more. <laughs> but maybe I just wasn't finding things I was inspired by or looking for, probably. And now, lately, I'm... Yeah, I'm just learning about all these new composers, young composers, and mm. people out there doing some really cool stuff and, uh, and enjoying that. That's awesome. Yeah. What was the last thing you listened to on Spotify or otherwise? The last thing I listened to was uh, the piece I was just telling you about. It's called The Stone Tapestry by Jeff Harriet. Huh. And that is the it's a piece for flute and percussion duo with percussion quartet. It was recorded by Third Coast Percussion one of my favorite percussion quartets. Those guys are just the best. Mm. And Do East, which is a flute and percussion duo, um, who I also know had them here years ago. And they're wonderful players too. And they recorded the piece. It's a beautiful recording. Um, so cool. that so I've been listening to that because we're going to be working on it this year. Mm. So it's that I've been listening to that piece a lot. Cool. Um, if there was one thing you could pick that you want to improve upon in your playing. Is there is there one thing that you're like, man, I really want to get better at? Mm. <laughs> There's so many things. <laughs> one, just one, Steve? Just one. Sure. Well, wow. you know. I don't know. If there are one, uh, man, that's really hard to narrow down. I would love to be a better, um, I would love to be better at jazz improvisation as a melodic improviser. Oh. Like, on like the as vibes. a vibraphone player, yeah. marimba, piano, whatever. Yeah, I, I'm a, a good. I think I'm a good improviser as a jazz drummer, and I'm a good improviser as a improviser outside of you know you know not putting any genre on it. Sure. Um, I love improvising, and I think I'm, you know, quite quite good in many ways. Yeah. 
but I don't possess that ability to like play things with like if you put giant steps in front of me, I'd be like, okay, and look at the num you know, I could I could get I could fake it and right, but make I, the chord I can't play the chord changes happen. Yeah, yeah. I don't know yeah. I didn't work hard enough on that yeah. as a saxophonist or as a you know, I right. never really worked on being a jazz vibraphone player. Yeah. Um when I you know, I transitioned to being a jazz drummer. That being said, the amount of melodic improvisation experience I had, I think, made me a better jazz drummer. Right. Because I think I play melodically yeah. at the drum set, but yeah. I'm not playing chord changes. Here. Right. So I don't have that ability. So I can't really teach that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have students who sometimes want to learn that. And I'm like, you know, I can teach you the technique of playing the vibraphone and I can help you with the basics. But then you're going to need to study with someone like Ed Densavage or, you know, I, I try Dave to send Scoggin them to, yeah, like Dave Scoggin, someone yeah. who's a, a good jazz pianist or guitarist that can teach them that theory and yeah. all the chordal stuff. And Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Um, is there a particular artist or person that recently that's inspired you that you feel inspired by? Mm. Yeah. Um, Maria de Los Angeles. She's, she was here last year, a painter. That's her painting. Those two pieces of art behind you are hers. And the, the skateboard is actually a project she did with her husband, Ryan. Oh, that's cool. Um, I'm inspired a lot by visual artists and writers these days. I'd say another one is Angela Decker, who's a good friend of mine. She's mm. a local poet and works at JPR. I've um, read um, a lot of her poetry when I first met her a couple years ago, and, and uh, Tessa and I are actually planning a collaboration with her coming up this year. Um, so I've been finding a lot of inspiration from words and mm. visual art. That's cool. Yeah. And how does that translate to into music, or does it, or does it even matter? Maybe it doesn't matter. <laughs> all are all of the above are yeah. correct. Yeah, <laughs> I think it definitely translates into just how I think about how I play yeah. or how I hear music. Yeah. Um, I think they're all connected. They're, they're connected and related. You know, words are a very rhythmic and melodic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you could say visual art is too, you know, in, yeah. in less of a direct way maybe, but, um, to me they all feed off each other and I, yeah, I draw inspiration from all of it. Cool. Um, do you have any like resources, like f- your go-to resources, blogs, websites, podcasts, books uh, related to percussion or music or practicing or inspiration? I don't know. Mm. Any any top five? Yeah, that's those? good. I should I should be better about that. I mean, <laughs> Stephen Schick's book, The Percussionist Art, is a you know, and I always come back to that as a a great resource for inspiration. Mm-hmm. It's an you know been out over a decade now but it's yeah. such a powerful book i reread it a lot or sections of it a lot um there's some good a couple of good podcasts uh there's one called at percussion which is run by casey cangelosi and a few other people i did uh was interviewed on their podcast a couple of years ago mm. um and they're they've been doing it for several years now and they in, interview a lot of people and awesome some really cool interviews from that um new new podcast by black swamp percussion that just started um that's a good one and uh 
Atlas Obscura. Hmm. Cool. I love that. Do you know about Atlas Obscura? No, I don't. So it's a book, but it's also a website, and I'm on their email list, so I get a daily email from them. And it's just like things from around the world that are a little more obscure than (laughs) the things you know, the famous things you know about. Wow. You know, so I think it started as a travel thing and their book is like, if you go to a, you know, a different city or something, you can look up what are some obscure things to see here. Oh, wow. That's awesome. But, you know, I get a daily email. I read that every day and like, I always find at least one or two things in there. They're like, oh, wait, I got to read about that. Oh, this, oh, did you know about this? That is so cool. How is that even possible? You know? Right. Yeah. So. Awesome. I love Atlas Obscura. And, uh, what are your, what would be your top five tools for inside the practice room? Top five tools. Wow. This is going to expose what a bad practice around. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. So one of them is I'm trying, this is a new thing I'm going to try this year. So a cat's out of the bag, but I'm going to try not to call it a practice room anymore. Oh, okay. I've decided what I'm going to call it, but I'm going to try to replace the word practice with the word play. Uh, oh, I because, like it. Because I think play keeps that element of fun and surprise and playfulness, mm. um, ex, uh, experimentation, yeah. you know, I like that word better and I'm going to try to replace the word practice in my vocabulary with the word play. I like it. Um, so that's tool number one. <laughs> now what I'm going to call the room you do it in, I haven't really thought about that yet, but play room doesn't quite sound right. right. Um, okay. Uh, goals. Mm-hmm. So having a goal, even if that goal changes, that's okay. But yeah. you know, goals can change and that's fine. But not having a goal is dangerous, I think. Right. So having a goal, um, having fun, keeping it fun. Mm-hmm. It goes along with play a little bit, right. but it's a good one to remind yeah. oneself about. Um, staying focused. It's easy to lose focus. Mm. And always create something. Mm-hmm. So that's one I've been thinking about a lot too, trying to incorporate more improvisation into playing. All right. <laughs> um, so, so one thing I do, like when a student's working on a piece and they're inevitably, they come to a part in the piece that's hard. I try to get them to, okay, figure out what is it that's hard in that piece? Is it, you know, going from here to here physically, or is it this chord progression or is it a, you know, whatever yeah. it is, there's usually, you can make up a, some kind of exercise yeah. or etude yep. or something <laughs> that will help you do that right. better. And that's creating something. Yeah, You've yeah. created a little, you know, nugget of something that will help you. And I think I try to remember to do that myself. I try to find those opportunities to help my students do that. And I think just that, that idea of creating something every time you're playing, mm. even if that's just for a sec, just take 30 seconds to improvise something. And right. great. That, that was all it was. <laughs> great. You did it, but you never know where that, that'll where take you. you know? And sometimes it's that ability to, you know, there's some technique you're trying to learn or some piece you're trying to learn. And there's a way to create something that will help you with that. Right. And it's that act of creating that I think can open different kinds of things in our mind than just doing what we're told to do all the right. time. Yeah. That's so awesome. I often tell my students, I try to shift their perspective around mistakes. I tell them when, when you made a mistake, 
you should get really excited because now you know what to practice mm -hmm. instead of like blowing over like especially younger students i don't know why this is but they just want to keep going they want to get to the end yeah right <laughs> and it's really hard to like get them to be like no that's your clue that yeah. little light should go off in your head like I like what you're saying. Yeah, stop. Spend some time there. <laughs> right. Create an exercise. Create something. That's mm -hmm. awesome. Um, awesome. Well, tell us. So you've told us a little bit about some of your upcoming projects. Anything? Any other? So you've got the yeah. stuff with Tessa and mm -hmm. any flamenco stuff coming up? We have a green show coming up September 21st. Uh, that's here at Ashland, obviously. Um the week before that, I'll be back in Guanajuato again for the Transplanted Roots International Percussion Symposium, um, which has moved four years ago. It was in Montreal. Two years ago, it was in Australia, Brisbane. And now it's an every other year thing. And mm. now it's in uh, Guanajuato. Awesome. So I'll be there in September, mid-September. I'll be performing a piece that David Bethel and I he composed it, but we worked on it together. La Luna Deja Un Cuchillo, The Moon Leaves a Knife, uh, which is a solo cajon and electronics piece. Awesome. Yeah, so I'll be performing that there and attending the whole symposium. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, and then we're going to do a big concert here with all the percussion ensembles at the uh, beginning of December or maybe end of November, I think, actually. Mm which will be a um, all the kind of classic percussion ensemble pieces. They're all composed in like the first 11 years uh, since since the first piece, which was in 1930 by Amadeo Roldan, the Ritmicas 5 and 6, wow. and then Ionization and yeah. some John Cage and Johanna Magdalena Bayer. Um, yeah, so cool awesome. concert of classic percussion ensemble music, which will then be bookended at the end of May with a concert of all newer percussion music, mm. including a brand new piece um, I applied for and got a grant to create a composition competition here that we'll be running this coming year. Awesome. So it'll be marketed in the fall and adjudicated in the winter, and then a winner chosen composer flown out workshop with and premiere piece in May. That'll be for left edge percussion. Mm. So that that's exciting. And the bang the can, bang on the can. Bang is, on the can is at the beginning of May, beginning of May, right? May first through third, and we're bringing Canadian percussionist Danny Tones out for that late May concert. Mm. We'll have our second annual SOU Percussion Festival here on February first with Ivan Trevino as guest artist. Awesome. Um, Are you and Tessa recording? We have been, and we are continuing to discuss recording <laughs> options. Yes, we are. We, okay. are, we want to release a recording. We're, you know, we've got. We released an EP a few years ago mm -hmm. uh, that was four pieces, three pieces, yeah. um, and we've recorded one more since then. And we've got other things we can record. It's that whole conundrum of. <laughs> you know, our CDs worth recording anymore right. and who pays for it and how's it, how does it get released? And yeah, we're, yeah, we're talking about it okay. and, you cool. know, trying to figure out what the proper next step is with that. And there's been some recent, um, developments that may move that forward. So, and we're, there's some commissioning things we're working on also that we're 
uh, trying to move forward a commission with Alex Shapiro, who's a composer. She lives up in uh, Friday Harbor, Washington. Mm. Um, and this project with Angela Decker, we're continuing to um, work on collaborative collaborations on the John Luther Adams Songbird Songs thing we've been doing for about a year now. We just performed that a couple weeks ago here at Science Works, and mm. looking at doing that in other places around the country in talks with a few different ensembles about that. Awesome. But, yeah. So yeah. That's of, a lot. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Very busy. Coming very up. exciting. And where can people find you online if they want to know more about what's going on in Terry Longshore's world? Yep. So my website, terrylongshore.com, will have um, all the information about events and things. The, right now it will look like not much is coming up because I just we just ended a season and yeah. the season announcement will come out next month, but that'll all be there. And then Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, I'm on mm-hmm. all those. Not super, you know. Right. At Terry Longshore is the Twitter. Yep. Is that the same for Insta? Yeah, and, same yeah. for all of them, yeah. Okay, cool. Yep. And Left Edge Percussion has an Instagram page, com. <laughs> There's a website there. and Yeah, but all that stuff's linked on all those things. So. Sure. Yeah. And I'll put links underneath uh, in the show notes cool. to all this stuff. So Awesome. Well, thank you, Terry. It's been... Uh, absolute delight to talk to you um you know we've been friends a long time but it's also just fun to sit down and yeah talk shop a little bit and definitely um yeah and you're my first guest so that's quite Woo! a quite a cool. <laughs> <laughs> thanks steve <laughs> yeah that's awesome thanks so much terry yeah, good luck with the podcast thanks so much for listening to this episode of the playful musician podcast i'm so glad you could be here A lot has changed in the world since I recorded this episode. Most musicians are having to find new and creative ways to share their gifts, as most, if not all, live performances have been canceled, as are most festivals talked about here. But a lot has stayed the same. Musicians still need to practice, they still need to create music, and they still have struggles with time management. So, if you're a musician, I invite you to head over to my website, theplayfulmusician.com, and download the Musician's Guide to Time Management. It's totally free, and it's even got a sample practice calendar just to get you going. So go ahead and go to theplayfulmusician.com forward slash time management to get it now. You can find show notes and links to everything talked about on the show on the website as well, and even get a preview of upcoming episodes. Check it out at theplayfulmusician.com. Oh, And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review. It would really help me out. Thanks so much. Have a great week, and I'll see you soon. Take care.